The Oakland County Child Killer, which I covered extensively in the long-form podcast, Don't Talk to Strangers, is a case that I could work on for weeks or even months at a time without growing tired of it. One of the things that has always bothered me about the case is the term babysitter murders, or calling the killer of those four children the babysitter. To understand where that term originated and why you still sometimes see it or hear it associated with this case, we need to look at three murders that happened a month before the Oakland County child killer picked up Mark Stebbins in February of 1976. We'll begin with an associated press piece from March 8, 1976, titled Rewards Offered for Slayings. Listeners, this reads like something from a Stephen King novel. It begins, Rewards totaling over $20,000 are being offered in four Detroit-area homicides. Then, they offer a list of dead kids. A $7,500 reward is offered for information about the murder of 14-year-old Sheila Schrock in Birmingham. There is $5,000 available for information in the case of a Ferndale boy whose remains were found in Southfield. That is referring to Mark Stebbins. $5,000 is available for information leading to the arrest of the killer of 16-year-old Cynthia Cadju of Roseville. Her body was found in Bloomfield Hills. And finally, there is a cash reward for information about the murder of 16-year-old Judy Farrow of Redford back on January 1st, 1976. The year isn't even two months old, and we have four dead children. Now, two of the victims were babysitting at the time of their death. And I believe this is where the term babysitter comes from. Because these girls were babysitting, they started calling him the babysitter killer. Then, as the victims grew younger, the title stuck around. All of this misery and tragedy just blended together. And honestly, it was a hellish year for Detroit-area families. So today, we're going to start with Judy Farrow of Redford. Her body was found on New Year's Day, 1976. She was left in the snow of Lola Valley Park, just a couple of blocks from her home. Judy was a student at Mercy High School in Farmington Hills. Mercy is a private Catholic school for girls. A yearbook photo shows a smiling Judy with short dark hair and glasses. She had recently gotten her driver's license, but she didn't drive much. Her aunt described her as a quiet girl and an excellent student. On New Year's Eve, she was sitting for a neighbor family, the Lots, and they had two young children, aged five and nine. Judy let the nine-year-old stay up to ring in the new year and then tucked her into bed for the night. Once she was in bed, Judy placed a call to her family to wish them a happy new year. And it's what happened next, between that phone call, which happened around midnight, and the arrival of the homeowners at 3 a.m. that no one can explain. When the lots returned home, they find Judy's coat on the floor and the phone is ripped out of the wall. Adding to their horror and confusion is that on the floor they see a spent shell casing and there's a bullet hole in the ceiling. They can't use their phone to call police, but they have to wake up their neighbor and ask to use their phone since the lines were cut at their house. In the house, there's no sign of their babysitter, but mercifully, the two little girls were safely asleep in their beds. As day breaks, a canvas is done of the neighborhood, and Redford Township Police learn that a neighbor of the lots is also missing. 19-year-old Gary Purvinkler, he lives down the street. 
It seems that he'd taken a gun and his father's car and disappeared in the early hours of the morning. The Pervinkler's house, if I remember correctly, is across the street and a couple of doors down from where Judy was babysitting. Around 7 a.m., a Redford Township police officer finds Judy's body in the park. She'd been beaten and strangled. Despite the spent shell casing in the lot home, Judy was not shot. She was also fully dressed when patrolman Tom Street found her body. Now, they're even more curious about the missing teenager, so the police interview his family. His brother Michael said that Gary was a 1974 graduate of Redford Union High School and that he'd recently enlisted in the Air Force. He also told police that Gary left the house without his shoes and without his wallet. That sounds out of character for anybody in January in Michigan. When asked about the missing babysitter, they learned that Pervinkler and his family don't know the pharaohs, even though they lived on the same block. With Judy recovered, police start looking for Gary Pervinkler and his car. On January 12th, almost two weeks later, the vehicle is found abandoned near Cadillac, Michigan. Cadillac is in northern mid-Michigan, and it's about 200 miles or 320 kilometers from his home. The state police crime lab comes out and they process the vehicle and do a search of the area, but they don't find anything of interest. There's no sign of Gary Pervinkler. His family believes that someone kidnapped him, forcing him from the home without his shoes. The family also points out that Gary had the stomach flu. He'd spent most of New Year's Eve in bed or throwing up. He was really sick. There was no reason for him to leave the house because he was too sick to go anywhere or hurt anyone. But police and the prosecutor disagree, and the prosecutor draws up kidnapping and murder charges against the missing man. The prosecutor tells the press that the lot's home and the crime scene at Lola Valley Park show only one perpetrator. It won't be until April 7th that Gary Pervinkler's remains are found, and I bet they were found by mushroom hunters because that's the season in Michigan. Near his body, they find a handgun. It's the right caliber, a twenty-two, which matches what he took from his home and matches the bullet found in the ceiling of the lot residence. In addition to that evidence, there is also only one set of prints outside the lot home and leading to and away from where Judy's body was left in the park. It takes two days to confirm that the body found near Cadillac is that of Gary Pervinkler. He somehow accessed the lot home. Judy may have even opened the door to his knock, thinking the lots were back early. He fired a shot into the ceiling, took Judy away to the park, forcing her through the snow in his bare feet. Then he beat and strangled her, leaving her body out in the open. He drove off with his dad's car and the gun, headed north to a remote area in mid-Michigan where he would abandon the car, walk further and further into the dense woods before he pressed the gun to his chest and pulled the trigger. His death answered one question but left the Pharaoh and Pervinkler families with more questions. What could make their son, someone with no history of criminal behavior and no history of mental illness, suddenly do such a terrible thing? With the main suspect dead, the murder of Judy Farrow is quietly and unofficially closed. Judy's friends, family, and loved ones are left with their grief and so many unanswered questions. I decided to submit a Freedom of Information Act request to Redford Township Police on this case, and they were happy to give me the file. But now, 
Almost 45 years later, all that remained were a few thin pages to document one of Redford's darkest days. Our second babysitter murder is that of Cynthia Kadju. One of the lines that jumped out at me while reading about her case is that Cynthia left her friend Rose's house and headed the half-mile south to her own home, but she never made it. And the trip from her friend's house to her house would have her crossing a wide median to get home, because in 1976, I-696 was still being built on the east side. And listeners, I don't remember a time before eastbound 696. We need to keep in mind that Cynthia basically went missing from a construction area. And it's Thursday, January 15th, 1976, that 16-year-old Cynthia Kadju is last seen in the 11-mile area of Roseville between Gratiot and Grosbeck. She was last seen wearing a long gray coat with fur trim, a pink turtleneck sweater, new blue jeans, white athletic shoes, and black gloves. Her walk from her friend's house to her home should have taken about 10 minutes, and this was a walk she'd made many times previously. When Cynthia didn't arrive at home, her parents assumed that she was sleeping over at Rose's house. This was not an uncommon occurrence. So she wouldn't be reported missing until Friday night around 6.30. And part of the responsibility for that delay falls on the school. These days, if your student doesn't arrive at school, you get a phone call by 10 a.m. Schools did not do these things in the 70s. Perhaps if someone had called home to report that she didn't arrive for class, the alarm would have been raised sooner. But listeners, for Cynthia, it doesn't matter. Cynthia Kadju was dead before midnight on the 16th, a victim of multiple sexual assaults, and she was killed by a blow to the head with a blunt object, a strike that cracked her skull and pierced her brain. Cynthia's naked body was tossed on the side of the road in Bloomfield Hills, just north of Franklin Village. In a deeply disturbing turn of events, Cynthia's remains were not only visible to dozens of motorists who drove by her body, but at some point, she was pushed further off the road by a passing vehicle. Yet, no one stopped, and no one called it in. Autopsy reveals that Kaju had been restrained with ropes and sexually assaulted before receiving the fatal blow. Her face shows bruises from a beating. The coroner gave Kaju's time of death as approximately 11 p.m., Kaju's clothes, the white sneakers, the brand new jeans, the pink turtleneck, they will never be recovered. The community is horrified that one of their children could be walking home when they are snatched off the street to be assaulted and murdered. The Roseville City Council put up a $1,000 reward for information leading to the person or persons who murdered Cynthia. It would be two full years before the truth about Cynthia's last day came out. Cynthia was picked up by three men. Raymond Heinrich Jr. and Bobby Anglin, along with a third man who died before the arrests. They took Cynthia to a motorcycle club where she was beaten and assaulted. Then her body was dumped in Bloomfield Hills. Heinrich and Anglin were found guilty of murder in 1979 and sentenced to life in prison. I believe that Heinrich died in the last year or 15 months, but 72-year-old Anglin, he's still alive and lives at the Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater. While Cynthia wasn't babysitting the night she was attacked, her name is grouped in with the babysitters, part of a tragic trio of teen girls who died brutal, unnecessary deaths in January of 1976. 
Something to note about this case is that I did a Freedom of Information Act request looking to get a copy of Cynthia's file. And a really nice man from the Roseville police called me and said, there is no such file. And I said, well, where is it? Because Cynthia was kidnapped from Roseville and murdered. And he said, I I don't know anything about this. I have nothing. So I ended up sending him some of the news stories about her case, and he was shocked. We figured that the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force, which technically still exists, even though it's not active, has Cynthia's file. So I was unable to get any information about her case at all, aside from what was in the news. Our third and final babysitter murder is that of Sheila Schrock. 14-year-old Schrock has not had an easy life. She lost both of her parents to cancer and now lives with her older brother. On Monday, January 19th, she attended school, went ice skating with a friend, and headed to her sister Nancy's home to babysit her infant niece. Like Judy Farrow, Schrock attended an all-girls Catholic high school, Marion High School in Bloomfield Hills. Schrock has a fair complexion, dark curly hair, and wears glasses. Since her parents died, she's been spending more time with her older siblings as she adjusts to the new normal that is her life. And what Sheila and her sister Nancy don't know is that there is an armed man committing a string of break-ins in Birmingham that night. He entered one home, saw the male homeowner, pulled out a gun, tied him up, and said he'd shoot him. In this break-in, the robber made off with five bucks. He broke into other homes on nearby streets, committing at least three burglaries before arriving at the home where Schrock was babysitting. Now, Birmingham police are already in the area because of the reported break-ins, but they were not in the right location to save Sheila. It's theorized that her killer knocked on the door of the home, and when he got no answer, he popped the latch on a window at the back of the house and let himself in, surprising Sheila as she came down the stairs. I think she had just laid her infant niece down for either bed or a nap when he came across her. And he attacked Sheila viciously, beating her, raping her, and finally shooting her several times. It was the gunshots that drew the attention of the neighbors. The police chief would comment publicly that this was one of the most brutal and vicious murders he'd ever worked in his career. At 8.20 p.m., a call comes into Birmingham Police, a woman reporting gunshots and screams coming from a home on Villa Drive. When police responded, knocking on the door, there's no answer. And like something from a movie, her killer had slipped out of the house and mixed with the curious onlookers gathered out front, before casually walking a block or two away to his late 60s Cadillac. He drove away from the scene, leaving a frightened neighborhood behind. When police go to the rear of the house and peer through the window, there are signs of a violent struggle. A struggle that left blood on the carpet, the cushions, and on the door to the sunroom. Like the Judy Farrow case, the child she was babysitting was, thankfully, not harmed. In news reports following her horrific murder, it was speculated that the still-missing Gary Purvinkler could be involved in the killing. But neither Redford or Birmingham police would comment on that theory. Of course, Gary Purvinkler, he's already deceased. He shot himself not long after he allegedly killed Judy Farrow on New Year's morning. 
Sheila's funeral is held at the Holy Name Catholic Church in Birmingham. And listeners, this is the same church where my younger siblings will make their first communion years later. In December of 1978, Oliver Andrews of North Carolina is tried in Oakland County and found guilty of Sheila's murder. He admitted to police that he killed her, but he neglected to mention the sexual assault. In January of 1979, he's given a life sentence. It is my understanding that Oliver Andrews died in prison in 2020, age 84. These three girls were murdered in the first three weeks of 1976. It was a terrifying and violent start to the year. Three girls from three counties dying violent deaths. Judy Farrow lived in Wayne County. Cynthia Kaju lived in Macomb County and Sheila Schrock lived in Oakland County. Each of them lived in safe, quiet, family-oriented communities, places where you think your children should be safe. Mark Stebbins will be taken from Nine Mile Road in Ferndale in February of 1976, and then things are quiet. The summer is mostly uneventful until 13-year-old Jane Allen of Royal Oak disappears while hitchhiking from her boyfriend's home in Auburn Hills. Jane Allen's case is not linked to the Oakland County child killings as her body was found in Miamisburg, Ohio, a couple of days after she disappeared. And honestly, I would love to write up Jane's case. She certainly deserves an episode, but I've been unable to find much on her disappearance and murder. Jane's case and the three teenage girls mentioned here, they do not fit the profile of the Oakland County child killer. But I thought this was an important episode to offer because today, when people talk about the Oakland County child killings, they forget that these three horrifying murders preceded them, or they are unaware of the deaths of three promising young women who deserve to have a future. Audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. If you enjoy YouTube, I have a YouTube channel under my name, Nina Instead, featuring a smooth blend of true crime and my cocktail-making hobby. If you follow me on social media, you've likely seen some of the many quarantine cocktails I've made. Now there are videos showing how the drinks are created. I'm also featuring lesser known or historic crimes on the channel, so you might enjoy checking those out as well. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. (laughs) 